0: This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first ever connectivity cloud. Visit Cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business.
1: Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, DC. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. All right, SpyCast listeners, you've heard me talk about this again and again, but the time is finally here. Leading up to the grand opening of the new International Spy Museum on Sunday, May 12th, we've hidden dead drops at famous spy sites around the Washington, D.C. metro area. To find one, you'll need to crack a clue to unlock access to a map showing where the dead drop is hidden. You could win tickets to the grand opening party, a year-long museum membership, a pair of tickets, or a VIP tour of the museum with, well, probably me. Every week, new clues and new dead drops, so keep checking back. If you want in, make sure you check out spymissioncountdown.org. That's spymissioncountdown.org. Now let's meet our guests. So we're joined today by Jeffrey Lewis, who's the director of the East Asia Nonproliferation Program at the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. That's a hell of a title. He's also a non-resident affiliate at Stanford Center for Security and International Cooperation, a contributing editor to Survival, and the founding publisher of armscontrolwonk.com. He's the author of Minimum Means of Reprisal, China's Search for Security in the Nuclear Age, Paper Tigers, China's Nuclear Posture, and the 2020 Commission Report on the North Korean Nuclear Attacks Against the United States, a speculative novel. Welcome, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. It is a genuine pleasure. Well, I wanted to talk to you for a while. I just, I've just i had your book, the 2020 Commission, literally on my nightstand forever. I, I don't get a lot of time to read books for fun, and for whatever reason, there was a lull. And so I just dove into it over the last weekend, um, and it just wonderfully timed out over happenstance that you're in town for Nuke fest, which I want to talk to you about for a second, uh, and we were able to kind of get together on this. So we're going to talk about the book a little bit later. We will kind of want to walk through a little bit, starting with um, your arms control expert. How does one decide to become an arms control expert? Like, What is the path for, for the college kid out there who wants to work in nuclear weapons? How do you figure? And leave a little background. People know I wanted. I became fascinated with nuclear weapons when I was seven years old. Is my parents made the mistake of letting me watch the day after on TV. And from that moment on, I read Richard Rhodes at 10, and then again at 12, and then again at 15, until I understood what the hell was talking about. So I have a very weird path, but most kids aren't like that. So how did you get to where you are today? Well, you know,
2: I I do think it's one of those things that growing up in the 1980s, um, it was unavoidable. I mean, I think every little kid in their their hometown uh, has a story about how their hometown must be, you know, at a certain level on the Soviet targeting list. Um, and we, we actually, I grew up near Peoria, Illinois, and so uh, we're near Caterpillar, which is, you know, a big diesel engine manufacturer and might actually have really taken it on, on the nose. Uh, so I was always interested in those issues, but, you know, I was generally interested in foreign policy. And when I moved to Washington uh, as a summer intern, uh, I was working at the uh, Center for Strategic and International Studies, and, and there was just a lot of kind of nuclear and missile work around and it was one of those funny things where once you learn a little bit, you know so much more than everybody else. And and so pretty quickly, even though I didn't know that much, like I kind of got to be the nuclear guy. Mm-hmm. And I just got invited to, like, better meetings than I should have been in. And so, you know, one thing leads to another. And, and it's a complicated field. And there's, like, an endless amount of technical detail. And so you can get – you can just sort of it's – a, it's a rabbit hole you fall down into. And, and then you end up at NukeFest.
1: Right. We talk about technical detail, and that's an interesting point I want to bring up, is that there's a lot of partisanship in the arms control world. And it's not Republican and Democrat. It's scientists and policy wonks. And there's, there's, I have a lot of friends who are scientists, many of whom are actually literally nuclear physicists. And they think they understand policy better than the policy people do. And they argue that the policy people think that they understand the science side better than they actually do. Is this an issue? Is this a heavy on science, right? You're talking about nuclear physics. You're talking about, and even beyond, like talking about rocketry, right? Throw weights and, you know, ballistic trajectories and all this crazy high level, you need a PhD in physics to understand. There aren't a lot of people that have the physics degree and the policy experience and then vice versa. So is there a divide here? How do we... How do we- this is a really high-level question for the second question of the podcast. But how do we bridge that divide? Well,
2: you know, it's been a problem since the very beginning. Uh, I, I teach a class on uh, nuclear history. And the people at the beginning of the, the nuclear era who had qualms uh, about nuclear weapons were the scientists. Right. Because they were the only people who, who knew. And, and so the, the kind of early debates involved questions of openness, scientists who felt they knew. And so even though they weren't policy experts, they felt like they're the only people who understood the technical realities of the situation. And, of course, they were, you know, policy figures who, who basically wanted them to shut up. Uh, but, I, I mean, I think you see that that stretches all the way to the present mm-hmm. day. So, um, you know— if you look at the organizations that got set up um, in the immediate aftermath uh, of the uh, first use of nuclear weapons, you know they were scientists' organizations. Right. We still have the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Well, the
1: FAS, and, Federation of Now American Scientists, but it was atomic scientists. That's exactly there. right. Yeah. And
2: and so, you know, those those fault lines exist to the present day. And you know, I'm not someone with a technical degree, but but um, a lot of my mentors uh, were people who were mentored by that first generation right. of scientists. So, uh, you know, how do you bridge the divide? I mean, I think it's really tough because it's a different part of your brain for the technical piece than it is for the policy piece. Mm-hmm. And I meet a lot of policy smart people who can't tell a missile from a warhead. And I, I meet a lot of scientists who cannot frame a policy question. But I think it just, you know, you have to have a mix of both people and, 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 and you got to go at it.
1: Well, I mean, the trick for me, I mean, what gets me about the scientists is, is in many cases, not all of them, I'm not trying to generalize about everybody, is there's, the number one question tends to be, can we do this? And very rarely do we get to this, should we do this? And that I think of things like ballistic missile defense. I think of things like, even the conversation right now about making low-yield low, low yield nuclear weapons and other things like that, too. And even going back to the like the, some of the obscure things, like the EMP debate, which drives a lot of us absolutely bonkers up the wall, Is it technically feasible? Well, that science is still debatable, and some people argue it's not, like you know, heliophysicists will argue that it's not. But it's why the hell would you use a nuclear weapon for that purpose versus just nuking a city? Same basic idea about this is an argument that Oppenheimer and and everyone else at the time were saying, sure, we can make a thermonuclear weapon, but should we? And Oppenheimer, of course, says no, and Teller says yes, but this is not a new argument, but it still exists today. That seems to be this divide is this idea of we don't just want to make it because we can. We need to have the conversation about should we do it.
2: Yeah, I think you know, so much of the discussion turns on what is possible because that's a kind of knowable problem. You know, So we have a lot of dif- discussions, for example, about whether or not missile defense works. Because at least that's a context where you have a kind of knowable question and you can try to, to, to box things out and frame them and, and, and really get a yes or no answer. Uh, but if you then transition that conversation to stability, you know, do missile defenses enhance stability? It's like, well, that's now messy and complicated, and, and you know, it involves uh, not just the technology, but the the psychology of the policymakers who are making decisions and how they perceive both the threats they're facing and the efficacy of their defenses. Um, and you know, like, then you're in crazy town, right. you know, because just there is no objective answer to those questions, and so it's, um, you know, it's it, it's very interesting to me to see how you know we have these policy questions and there is I think a very strong tendency to try to push them back into technical questions because we feel like we can answer
1: them mm-hmm. but but it's not really what we care about right there's, there's a perception that that I, I fight against as much as I possibly can but that people at, like NukeFest and other places are, are granola's fighting for global zero and they have an agenda and that we shouldn't take them seriously because and I push this argument back against the scientists. I say, well, the scientists are looking for budgets and they're looking for all the money to build their BMD system. How do we get beyond the, you have an agenda because you're a tree-hugging granola versus you have an agenda because you want a billion dollars to build your, your brilliant pebbles system?
2: You know, I think at, at the end of the day, um, our community is divided for the same reason that the United States is divided. And and you know these arguments have always been poisonous um you know when when oppenheimer decided that he didn't want the united states to build thermonuclear weapons um you know he lost his security clearance mm-hmm. Right, and and there was what a lot of people felt was a very political effort to target him now he he he, he certainly gave the people who wanted to pull his security clearance plenty of rope to hang him with right uh, but you know that that's just i think been an endemic uh aspect you know we at the uh, Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey, the mouthful you mentioned, uh, we have a student named Paul Warnke, and and his grandfather was also Paul Warnke, and he, and he was uh, uh, a well-known political appointee, and during his confirmation hearing at the beginning of the Carter administration, uh, Paul Nitza, uh, himself quite famous, testified that Paul Warnke was a bad American, right, because they disagreed about these policy right. questions. They, they also didn't like one another, yeah. right? Uh, so, you know, I would like to have a pat answer about how we move past it, but right. I, 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 you know, I think the way to move past it is just not to give in to it, you know, is really truly to try to listen to one another, um, and 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 make progress that way. Um, but I think we have to be realistic
1: that people are people and and they right. aren't always nice. Do you think there's a generation of Americans? Maybe it's not even generational. Maybe it's just even the older Americans have forgotten the threat that we all lived with during the Cold War. I mean. I look at things like pulling out of the INF Treaty and just how hard that was fought for by Republican administrations to try to make the world a safer place. And you look at conversations about nuclear weapons being just another weapon. I mean, I think it was Harry Truman before Donald Trump was the last president who didn't quite understand and because they were brand new at the time. Is there a kind of a public misunderstanding of what these weapons can do? And more importantly, I guess, is there a policymaker? misunderstanding of what these weapons can do. I mean, again, the low-yield weapon conversation really shows me that people don't understand what the hell they're talking about. Yeah, it's really
2: interesting. I mean... One of the things I, I teach in my class is how this view evolved. So Eisenhower, it's as you say, like Truman is the last president to really have a very kind of, well, it's just a bigger bomb kind of view. Um, Eisenhower starts off talking that way, and then he starts talking in different ways. Mm-hmm. And you can really see that his, his thinking changes. And, you know, that really runs all the way up through Reagan, who was personally horrified right. by the day after, you know. Um, I do find I don't think people realize how large... And how destructive these weapons could be, um, you know i I tend to try to show my students a lot of uh, videos and images uh, because I you know a thing I was very critical of Barack Obama about when he gave his Prague speech he talked about how uh, in the event of a nuclear war, he said you know Prague, all this would be gone in a flash of light it wouldn't be gone in a flash yeah. of light. it would be days of horrific suffering you know and so I think people have kind of lost touch um, with with what happens, and you know, it's, sometimes it's just technical things like issues of yield. How mm-hmm. big is the bomb? Uh, you know, the bomb that was the bombs that were detonated on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we would now probably call those low yield, right? You know, I mean,
1: there's even lower yield, but those are small bombs. Well, yeah, when you start talking about megatonnage, then it just that's the end of the conversation. I mean, that, that's that's uh, <laughs> well,
2: you know, there's a perfect example. I was uh, uh, talking to a younger colleague today. Um, it, it, it's such a trivial pop culture example, and, and I don't know if anybody listens to this band anymore, but he went, wait a second, megadeth is yes. megadeth. And it's like, yes, yes, we're talking about society-level collapse. That's that's what the term means.
1: Well, I mean, and that's... Most people aren't thinking, even in a nuclear exchange, that we've kind of dialed down our our yields to the kind of hundreds of kilotons. But even in that case... Talking about massive, massive weapons, and they get too technical when you start talking about salted weapons and cobalt, and then your neutron weapons, which I just, you know, that's the end of civilization. I mean, and I think that people look at that statement as hysterical, and like, oh, you know, whatever, it's it's overblown. You know, you global zero people. No, no. I mean, I think that that there's a safe way, especially what we know now about the environmental impacts. Of nuclear weapons about nuclear winter, which really wasn't understood until the 1980s. And even now it's kind of poo-pooed. Um, but the science is there.
2: Yeah, you know, it's a very mind-bending thing to contemplate being a species that has the ability to commit collective suicide. You know, and and I think it is such a bizarre thing to contemplate um, that, that it just it's easier to sort of only think about scenarios where that wouldn't happen right. and, and not really embrace it. And so, you know, there's this uh, 50s sci-fi movie I love, The Day the Earth Stood mm-hmm. Still, not, not the terrible remake. Yeah. And, you know, the, the plot of this is there's an alien who comes down to earth and, you know, the alien says, look, your warlike ways were like charming and all when you were just killing one another, but now you have nuclear weapons and space travel. And so you're a threat to, you know, others. And so you either sort your stuff out, right? Or we're destroying you. And it's a, it's a metaphor. Right. It's a metaphor for this idea. What does it mean to be at the point where you have to fundamentally change how you think about problems or, you know, run this sort of incredible risk? And, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen the Daisy ad
1: that Lyndon Johnson read that aired once and never again. Yeah. yeah.
2: But, you know, and I mean, that ends with him. I mean, it's incredible. A president of the United States saying, you know, like, we must all love one another or we must die. Mm -hmm like that's some heavy heavy stuff so you know i think it's it's hard to get people to focus on it because it's so extreme uh, but you know nuclear weapons are terrible
1: what's interesting I, I think that the the false alarm in hawaii was a big eye-opener i was there a week after that happened and people were having conversations about nuclear war now like am i in the twilight zone you know it's it it's yeah, you know, like I said, 2018 and people having conversations about nuclear weapons and what they would do in fallout shelters. And literally, someone pulled out an old civil defense pamphlet talking about taking the first foot of topsoil off to be able to regrow stuff. I'm like, what the hell? So it's a real vignette in, in the novel. I, a mm-hmm.
2: friend of mine was actually surfing in Hawaii. Uh, and in the novel, I, I just literally have his real story. Um, which is he was out surfing and the alarm went off and his wife called him and it was like get back to the hotel um, and you know it was it's a it's a really strange moment that we live in because if you think about it there haven't been that many times where the United States has entered an, a relationship where another country can put a nuclear weapon on the U.S. Right. You know we went through it with the Soviets and that was a big hairy deal you know that was very frightening. Uh, By the time the Chinese could do it, you know, Nixon had gone to China and, you know, like Deng Xiaoping was about to, like, come to the U.S. and wear a cowboy hat, so it wasn't really that frightening. Uh, So I think it was probably a pretty terrifying thing for a lot of people in 2017 to kind of come to grips with this notion that this kind of post-Cold War holiday we'd had, like, was coming to an end. And, you know, I think that there is a country that has your city targeted with a nuclear weapon, and there are at least some scenarios where they say they would do that.
1: I'm going to get back to talking about specific countries in a moment, but I want to talk a little bit about open source intelligence, because one of the big reasons that I wanted to have you on was you use open source better than a lot of people. I mean, that's really kind of your bread and butter, is looking at open source imagery in many cases, but also news stories and everything else that comes out to understand mainly the North Korean program, but a lot of the other Asian stuff as well, and it's really your primary source. I want to talk about advantages and then drawbacks, too, because... Open source has become more and more ubiquitous throughout the intelligence community, but there are real drawbacks to this, whether it's too much information coming from lots of other places, conflicting information, bullshit information coming from dubious sources. All of these, it, it, the signals versus noise concept, going back to Wohlstetter, is amplified to degree. I mean, it's not NSA billions of metadata collection, but for for understanding what's real and what's not and trying to figure out what it is, that's a real issue with open source.
2: Yeah, so... There is nothing better about my job than just the work that we do with open source information because it's a little bit like being a kid in a candy store. You know, if you're, you're looking at a, a commercial satellite image or if you build a, a digital model of a missile, often there's a moment where you know something and you realize that, I mean, maybe people in, you know, classified settings know these things, but, you know, we, we found, for example, a Saudi missile plant. And there was a period where we're like, I, are we the only people who know this? <laughs> I mean, you know, other than like the Saudis, Right. And so there is this kind of incredible feeling of discovery. Um, but then it raises the question of like, well, are you actually seeing what you think you're seeing? Right. You know, and, and there are cases where we encounter countries that uh, try to make that harder for us with camouflage. Um, you know, uh, If you go online, you can find you can buy inflatable missiles, uh, which are designed precisely to fool uh, uh, overhead intelligence systems. Um, you know, so it's a really interesting it's a really interesting question. I was a philosophy major in college, so I was an epistemologist. Right, right. So I'm I'm really into the question of like how do we know what right. we think we know. So to me, it's like an endless cat and mouse game and I, I love it. Um, but you have to be really careful because you don't want to be one of these people who just,
1: I don't know, sees a parking lot and freaks out. We also have to I mean, you think about social media and you think about all the people providing information. Really a lot of what it comes down to is kind of vetting this information, trying to figure out what it's coming in because even the experts in the field can get ahead of themselves, can report bad information. You know, the formal press does this all the time, and they kind of go back and have to retract things. But if you're basing an entire analysis based on faulty information or a dubious source, who the hell knows if you're getting what you need to from that?
2: Oh, yeah. Confirmation bias is a yeah. hell of a drug, right? If you if you are looking for something, you'll find it. Um, there's a, a declassified case study I teach, um, and, and I, I teach it because we have the kind of declassified record from the U.S. looking at China in, in the 1960s, but it it it's it's a really important thing for open source researchers to know. Uh, you know, the U.S. became convinced that there was a, a plutonium production reactor in China. Now there wasn't at this point, right? They were using a different method. Uh, but there was so much pressure to find the reactor, they found the reactor. Mm-hmm. Right? And it turns out it wasn't. And it wasn't it's not that they were incompetent or they did a bad job. It's just that you know, if you really are looking hard for something, and, and you're engaged in interpretation of images, you know they don't they don't interpret themselves. Um, you can you can really you can get in a bad way. It's, it's one of the reasons I like it when my colleagues yell at me, yeah. um, because we sort of yell at each other and we argue. And I think we think it's really important to maintain that culture where, uh, you know, if somebody says, "Okay, this is what's happening," pretty much everybody else in the room needs to come up with all the reasons that might be wrong.
1: Well, I mean, this, is, this is segues well into North Korea because that's, that's kind of a lot of what is going on in the news right now. Um, I'm wondering what the latest assessment of capabilities is because they, th- we had the, the summit, um, which got us nowhere, and it sounds like they're gearing back up to do something. <coughs> Sorry. They're gearing back up to do something, um, and uh, whether or not they're doing a space launch or they're doing a ballistic missile test, or another underground nuke test. I think that would be really problematic if they did. Um, I think it's clear the nuclear genie is way out of the bottle of North Korea. Maybe they're not yet to where they can deliver a thermal nuclear weapon, although maybe. In your book, you kind of hint that they can. Um, so where are they, capability-wise? So I
2: think that they have all of the pieces in place. Um, and the question is going to be, would all of those pieces work together? You know, so in the book, uh, about half the missiles fail somewhere along the lines. But, you know, North Korea has done six nuclear tests, and, and the last nuclear test was uh, extremely powerful. It was a few hundred kilotons, so that's, you know, uh, a lot larger than, the you know, 10 to 20 kiloton devices dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So it was a thermonuclear weapon. Mm-hmm. And the North Koreans showed us a picture of it, um, and it— assuming the thing that they showed us the picture of and the thing they blew up were the same, it, right. you know, which you don't exactly know. Right. Um, it looked like a stage thermonuclear weapon. They also, by the way, they, they showed us all these little details that, like, really only people who are really into nuclear weapons design w- would have noticed. So I, you know, I think it's plausible that that they have that capability. And they have tested once a missile that could go all the way to Mar-a-Lago. Um, If they put all that together, I mean, would they all work? No, I don't think they would all work. Um, But, you know, what happens in the book and the scenario I worry about is some of them would. Right. And, you know, that's still a pretty bad
1: day. Yeah, you don't need all of them to work when you're talking about multi-hundred kiloton nuclear weapons. Well, you know, it's a crazy thing when you try to estimate
2: what the North Koreans are doing because they don't test as much as we do. So um, they're kind of happy with unreliable weapons. You know, and I think often we kind of look at something and we'd say, like, well, you know, this missile is really not going to be very reliable. You know, half of them probably won't work. And I think if you ask North Koreans, they'd be like, this missile is really reliable. Yeah. Like, half of them are going to work. Right.
1: Well, let me, you mentioned in the book several times, and, and obviously this has been co- talked about in the real world, about Kim Jong-un as a rational actor. Um, and for those that are studying political science, rational actor theory is kind of one of the foundational you know, ways we look at the world. Um, people talk crazy, rocket man, whatever you want. To. People say it's the same thing about the Iranians in many cases. Um, are we convinced that Kim Jong-un is a rational actor um, and is going to uh, act the way we assume he's going to as a rational actor or are we mirror imaging him a little bit?
2: Well, you know, I mean, the funny thing about that question is the mirror imaging implies that we're rational actors. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I mean, one of the fascinating things, I, I love studying decision-making. Uh, Tom Schelling was, was on my, my dissertation committee. And, and, you know, Tom kind of loved to point out the reasons that people would do really insane and seemingly irrational things. And his, his real joy in life was coming up with rational explanations for why people would do crazy things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I think I take my cues here from Saddam. You know, Saddam Hussein was someone who we now have a pretty good understanding of what he was thinking because we have a a large documentary record uh, of his meetings. And at some level, he was very calculating and shrewd and ruthless. And so I don't think you could say he was insane. But he also was not a great decision maker. Right. You know, and 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 so, you know, Saddam doesn't do anything in the lead-up to the 2003 Iraq War because he thinks there's no chance the United States will come to Baghdad, which is is mind-boggling because everybody in the United States knew that was going to happen. But, like, his life depended on getting that question right, and he got it wrong. So I kind of feel the same way about Kim. I think that he's pretty shrewd and pretty calculating and ruthless. I don't think he's insane. But I'm also not convinced that he has a realistic worldview and I'm not convinced that the information he gets is always the best. And so that's, he's a rational light, right? (laughs) you know?
0: We'll be right back after this. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using A.I. in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight A.I. with A.I., the best A.I. protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful A.I. engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus A.I. to prevent ransomware and A.I. attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.
1: Right. Yeah. It's impossible to be a truly rational actor if you're not getting the best information and it's in those autocratic states. I mean, you see this with Stalin where everyone's afraid to tell the leader what the truth is because they're going to end up getting killed you know leading into world war ii is a great story of you know stalin in the fetal position as bunker because no one had the the guts to tell them that the nazis were coming uh you hope that in the nuclear age that that is limited somewhat but
2: yeah i don't i don't yeah. have those hopes yes. i mean i i it's really interesting i mean one one thing i i do participate in occasionally are uh track two dialogues where you have you know um you know, they're not government to government. They're non-government to non-government. But often people are, you know, either have previously served in government or advisors. And just watching, like, Chinese and Americans talk to one another or North Koreans and Americans talk to one another, like, there's a lot of room for misunderstanding in right. those conversations. And so, like, add the bomb and I, I get nervous.
1: Well, I mean, if you – this is the last I'm going to talk about this. is going to harp on this forever. If you look at the history of the relationship between Korea, China, and the United States, is built upon – miscommunication misperception just the war itself and the way it started and the misunderstanding of chinese intentions the united states had when they pushed towards the border all these things were built on a complete and utter misunderstanding of the way the other side views the world and it's hard to say especially with north korea that we've gotten any better at understanding a kingdom that hasn't changed and it's not like we've been able to infiltrate it and understand it better than we do back in 1950
2: yeah you know there's this um Lovely uh, case study in in my class involving the very end of the Korean War, which I think just perfectly encapsulates this. The you know the the Korean War really gets hung up over the issue of uh, what to do with POWs, right. and um, uh, the South Korean president, angry at the negotiations that were underway, frees some of those POWs as a kind of a front to the North Koreans and the Chinese, intending I think to blow up the agreement. Uh, it doesn't blow up the agreement, but the, the the Chinese and the North Koreans attack a single South Korean military unit and destroy it. And it's a it's a, a unit that's a unit affiliated with the president. So it's a, it's a very – it's a symbolic mm-hmm. response. Um, and the Chinese are, like, very clear about what they're doing. You know, like, this is just – you did this bad thing. We were going to do this other bad thing, and now we're square and we can go back. Eisenhower, in his memoirs, is baffled by why they attacked and then stopped. You know and and so you know they think they're signaling, and we don't catch it and i you know I think we still see that today a lot well,
1: in the same end of the Korean War, we thought we were signaling them when Eisenhower kind of hinted about nuclear weapons, went through the Indian ambassador and all this stuff, and they just didn't get it or they just didn't have the response that we expected them to, and you can see some of that today still taking place where Not just the Trump administration, but the Obama administration, the Bush administration, going back all the way to probably the 1990s is when there was some kind of serious conversation there uh, when the nuclear program started up about signals and understanding what people are trying to say.
2: Yeah, you know, I'm I'm one of these people who is just really skeptical of signaling. I mean, I just every time I do a case study. uh, It always seems to me that American policymakers are very clear to themselves about what they're trying to say. And then anytime you get the other half of the conversation, it's just, it's totally lost on people. Uh, So, you know, and I see this even with North Korean propaganda, you know, listening to people try to interpret North Korean propaganda, which they think is very clear, right? And they think is very direct and, you know, explain some of these concepts to Americans and they're like, that sounds weird.
1: Well, there's a signaling happening from our perspective uh, that I think is particularly dangerous and that's some people talking about the libya model for for disarmament uh primarily this is people like john bolton national security advisor um that didn't work out all that well for moammar gaddafi why would kim jong-un think that's a good idea
2: yeah i have i really struggle with this because you know i i think the north koreans have been pretty clear that they aren't going to disarm that you know what they're offering is a kind of Uh, A relaxation of tension and and maybe an agreement, uh, you know, to be like Israel, a country that has nuclear weapons, but eh, we don't talk about that, right? Uh, And it's really interesting because whenever John Bolton brings up the Libya model, uh, it's incredible. Because if you were the North Koreans, you would think, okay, at the end of the first Gulf War, Saddam disarmed, um, and that left him vulnerable, and then at the end of the second Gulf War, uh, Gaddafi was persuaded to disarm, and that left him vulnerable. Why would Kim Jong-un sign up for this? And I, I think the strangest part about us not wanting to discuss that is the North Koreans have been really clear about that. Right. I mean, the North Koreans have released many propagandistic statements that, that literally say the mistake these two countries made was was disarming. So
1: We can tack on Ukraine to that also with the whole— idea of giving up their nuclear weapons, leaving them wide open. Or... Yeah.
2: You know, I get defensive about this because I don't think Ukraine really had any choice. But you yeah. know what? That is how the Ukrainians feel right, about exactly. it. Exactly. You know, yeah. and so I can, like, as a scholar, say, like, well, you don't really remember the details, you know, you couldn't have taken them over. But at some level, it doesn't matter because it's, it's... exactly the case. The Ukrainians feel like they gave this up. And, they're not and okay.
1: outside, outside people looking at it, maybe Kim Jong-un could also perceive that as you give up your weapons and this is what happens to you.
2: I, you know, I, I think that's exactly right, yeah. right? So, you know, whatever, whatever complaint I have about that example, I mean, it just we don't have a great track record of countries disarming themselves um, in, a, in a unilateral way um, and, and then having their much larger, more powerful right. adversary um, letting things go indefinitely.
1: Let's take a quick tour through Asia uh, and kind of hit up some hot spots. Uh, I'm glad we're still physically alive in here to talk about India and Pakistan that it seems to have cooled off a little bit a week and change ago it looked pretty bad um is this still for nuclear experts is this still the place that keeps people up at night I mean it seems like if world war 3 starts it's going to be here
2: I mean it's terrifying you know there are a couple of instances where there are you know nuclear armed powers fighting one another but we've never seen anything like the intensity of the fighting that we get across that border and its frequency. You know, it seems like every decade or so that we have a really serious nuclear crisis. Uh, so, you know, the example I always think of is in the years leading up to World War I, there were these series of crises. And every time there was a crisis and it was worked out and things passed, I think people got a little bit um, blasé. Mm. About them, but I think in hindsight we recognize it was just a matter of time before one of these crises got out of control. I I worry a little bit about that. Well, I mean, clear, it's
1: clear that the, the Indian army and the Indian military is so much more powerful than the Pakistani military, and most everyone assumes that the Pakistanis and they've leaked this out have some kind of red line where if they're losing enough territory or if India crosses a certain point, then it's a, almost an automatic nuclear response. And there's arguments about whether regional commanders have been given launch authorization, et cetera, et cetera. But for the most part, it's pretty common knowledge that at some point the Pakistanis will have to resort to nuclear weapons if there's a full-fledged war. That's never been—I mean, if the United States and the Soviet Union fought somewhere during the Cold War, there's the chance that it doesn't go nuclear. Because both of the militaries are relatively—it's not across the fold the gap or whatever. There's a chance it doesn't go nuclear. Same when Russia and China fought wars against each other. But this—I'm not sure there is yeah you know
2: it's it's really
1: hard because on the one hand you you want to
2: imagine that whatever the plans that people have when the, when the chips are down they're going to know that this is madness but but the problem is when you have plans you you often feel locked into them right right and so you know the the situation with Pakistan for me is particularly worrisome because you know I I do think that they rely on their nuclear weapons to offset their conventional inferiority. And and we can all sit here and think like, okay, but you wouldn't really be that crazy. But but it's, you know, that's because we're sitting here in a nice studio and nobody's attacking us. I think it maybe feels different in the bunker.
1: Well, in the 1950s in the United States, the PSYOP essentially required that you push the button and then you get out of the way, right? I mean, that's. That's really where the Pakistanis are and their nuclear evolution is where we were in the mid to late 1950s, maybe a little bit further ahead. But we talk about them being crazy. but That was our nuclear policy for two decades of yeah. massive retaliation. Get out of the way. There's no time for targeting packages. Redundancy, like 300 missiles targeted on the Kremlin. That's we can call them crazy all we want to, but that was our policy for two decades.
2: Yeah. Well, and I mean, it was a long time before policymakers decided to give themselves a separate Chinese option, you know? And so if things happened in, in Europe, they were going to happen throughout the entire world. So yeah, you know, I, I think that it's, it is very easy to step back and look at these plans and say something's crazy. Um, but you know, the thing you learn when you go to Nukefest is there are reasons that people articulate for this. and, and, oftentimes, countries develop plans involving nuclear weapons that, you
1: know, they'll send a chill down your spine. Yeah. Let me talk about the Saudis, um, because they have all of a sudden popped up on the radar, because somewhat because of political reasons, because Jared Kushner has been tied to secret, um, well, secret to us, uh, tech transfers that involve uh, nuclear power, not nuclear weapons, to the Saudis. And of course, the Democrats saw that and you know, it would be completely political malpractice if it didn't jump all over that, which they did. But there's a bigger issue here because people may forget or they may never have known kind of the Saudi flirtation with nuclear weapons. It's always been a fear, particularly if Iran is getting closer and closer to nuclear weapons, whether the JCPOA collapsing or not is going to stop that. The Saudis would not probably allow themselves to remain unarmed if Iran goes nuclear.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's certainly what Saudi officials have said, you know, and so I, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that US officials in that situation would like strong arm them. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I think for a long time, we've underestimated how anxious the Saudis and, and and the UAE really are, you know, I think people forget that in the 1980s, when the Iraqis and the Iranians were hitting one another with missiles, the Saudis, went to China and bought intermediate-range <laughs> missiles. You know, it's, it's to this date still the longest-range missile ever transferred. Uh, and, and, like, why, why did the Saudis do that? And it was just intolerable for them that Iran and Iraq could be hitting each other with missiles and that might be able to do the same thing to Saudi Arabia and that they couldn't turn around, right? And, you know, what I think was so interesting about that event is U.S. policymakers missed it. Like, they just—they didn't see it coming because they weren't expecting it to come. Um, And so we actually had a very similar experience where we were monitoring some uh, known Saudi missile bases. And we saw that Saudis had put up a a plant for producing their own missiles, right? Again, it's not a thing we were expecting to see. Um, Now, now those are missiles. Those aren't nuclear warheads. uh, But it does make me a little nervous that we, I think, have consistently underestimated— their threat perception and and their feeling that they might have to follow suit. So, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's it's not a trivial concern. And, uh, you know, we all, all of us at NukeFest play this game, like, like, who's on your list, mm-hmm. you know, who might be next? You know there's that Tom Lehrer song, Who's Next? Uh, and I think for a lot of us, the, the Saudis are on the, the short list of, of who might be next.
1: Are there other candidates that pop around for... Oh,
2: I, I avoided doing this at NukeFest because I didn't want to create an international incident. I mean, so, you know, my list... I'm going to go geographically. Mm-hmm. This is not really an order of priority. Um, I worry a little about Brazil. I worry a little bit about Algeria, which which had a program in the 1990s. It shut it down and still hasn't signed the additional protocol with the IAEA, which is a safeguards agreement that they should they should sign. Um, worry a little about Burma. Hmm. Um, worry about Saudi. Worry about UAE. Um, and I, I worry about Taiwan, and and in an extreme case, with a, with a different president, I worry about South Korea.
1: That's I mean, list. yeah, particularly if if North Korea and then China and South China Sea with Taiwan and yeah, and no it, Japan, no. You know, it's funny. I I think that
2: there is a real uh, yeah. I don't have the Japanese on the list because the Japanese public really hates nuclear weapons. Well, yeah, for, is, you know, and
1: you, you wonder
2: why. Yeah, right. right. It turns <laughs> out you you. You destroy two cities and people get a little sore about it. Um, you know, I've watched the Japanese—I've watched Shinzo Abe try to under, try to uh, implement constitutional reform uh, in order to allow Japan to play a larger role militarily. And I've always been struck at how much pushback there right. is. So, you know, on the technical side, it would be a snap right. for the Japanese. And so I guess we shouldn't discount it because it would be— relatively easy for them but i guess i have been impressed by how much natural resistance there was whereas you know if you look at like public polling surveys um you know the very strong nuclear allergy that exists in japan does not exist in south korea you know south korea it's sort of 50 50 depends on the day you ask people and, and how much you tell them about the
1: downsides or the upsides let me quickly touch upon the russians um this is where i wonder about open sources disinformation Because there's a lot of nonsense coming out, whether it's hypersonic weapons or nuclear-powered cruise missiles that fly 22 feet and then crash, or new insights into Russian nuclear doctrine where, you know, all of a sudden we have to reimagine things that we've thought we've understood for 50 years. Um, Is this just a lot of kind of finger-waving? Is this a lot of saber-rattling? I, you know, I don't know. I
2: mean... It is such a menagerie of insane Cold War ideas on display, right? There's the the Doomsday torpedo. There's the the nuclear powered cruise missile, which the U.S. looked at doing in the fifties and sixties, which just just spews radiation and, and is a nightmare. Uh, there are these hypersonic reentry vehicles. They've talked about actually uh, being able to shoot uh, missiles over the South Pole, mm-hmm. so you know it would be harder for the U.S. to detect them. There's a uh, a huge investment in different kinds of cruise missiles, which you know aren't particularly sci-fi, but like it's it's really incredible to me the breadth of programs that the Russians are showing off at the moment. Um, and I, they're clearly, clearly trying to rattle us, right? I mean, they're showing us far more detail than we've, we've ever seen in the past. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, what we've tried to do is establish where these things are being tested and try to work out whether the test infrastructure is you know, realistic, but, but I don't know. You know, I think some of them are probably real, but I got my doubts
1: about some others. At one point, do you bring in economic factors? Because one thing I look at as somewhat like as a hobby, because I have like nine full time jobs right now, is, is Russian armor, right? Because I'm a former tanker in the army, and the new Russian tank was supposed to be, you know, this badass Russian tank with an autonomous turret and all this. And they were going to build 10,000 of them. They can't even build 100 because they're broke. And it's, it's basically they went against the tried and true quantity as a quality all its own going back to Stalin and building the T-72s at work and went in our direction of building like the G-Wiz push button, you know, M1A2 SEP digital crap that we have now, that works great, but we know how to keep it up. They don't. If they're this broke and can't maintain their tank force, creating a fleet of hypersonic weapons or of ballistic missiles that can defeat our well, I was going to say beat defeat our BMD, but that's not all that hard to do. But these newfangled weapons that seem to be so tech-heavy and so resource-heavy mm-hmm. that it's hard to think that economically the Russians could support this.
2: Yeah, I I think that you know some of the programs I think the Russians just exaggerate the impact that they're actually going to have. So, for example, the hypersonic reentry vehicle, the U.S. looked at these kind of gliders in the in the '60s, uh, and and it's a it's a funny thing because people actually. Think about hypersonics as going really fast, which is true. It, it's fast, right? It's hypersonic. Mm-hmm. But it's actually much slower than a reentry vehicle from a, from a warhead. Right. You know, so it actually has to slow down to glide, which means a missile defense system would actually have a better shot at it, right? So that I think that a little bit of the Russians just figuring out that something bothers us and then, you know, talking about it a lot. Um, and so I, those are things I think they can do. I don't I don't think it would make that much of a difference. I mean, the place I really am baffled by is the nuclear powered cruise missile cuz that really should be that should be a lot of work, you know. And that should be a technically difficult thing and you know they were testing it in the Arctic and we watched them pack up that test site and then they they moved their test site. So I you know can't really prove that some of these things don't 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 exist, but like, yeah, I have the same fundamental yeah. skepticism that they're going to be able to pull off all the things that they're showing us. I
1: think back of the old May Day parades where they would have like the backfire bomber on display and want to make us think that there's hundreds of these and fly the same four overhead into like six different formations. So the CIA guy on the ground would be counting and be like, "God, there's thirty of these," and it would be the same ones and would just fly in different ways. I think there's a lot of kind of Sleight of hand going on here with some of these weapon systems. Okay, so let, let's let talk about the 2020 Commission Report book. We've been talking a little bit about it. A lot of what we've been talking about is a the theme of this book. Uh, the title of the 2020 Commission Report on the North Korean Nuclear Attacks Against the United States. As you probably expect, the subtitle is a speculative novel since this hasn't happened yet. Um, fascinating, but where the hell did you come up with the idea for writing this?
2: Oh, so this was... Really easy, in a sense, because, you know, for years I've, I've written articles about North Korea's nuclear uh, strategy, and anytime I would tell people what I thought North Korea's nuclear strategy was, uh, it just seemed, I think, insane to people, um, because, like, a nuclear war would be a crazy thing to fight, right? And it's very hard to, in a non-fiction setting, explain to people how a leader would rationally choose this totally irrational outcome, uh, and so... I'd been asked by the Washington Post to write an op-ed uh, about how a nuclear war in Korea might start. And I, I, I expressed this problem. Like, yeah, if I give you the, like, rational, like, it just, it'll just it seem nutty. Can I tell it as a story? Can I just tell you how it happens? And, and when people make mistakes, it'll be part of the story, and they'll just understand that people aren't aren't, aren't perfect. Hmm. Uh, and so I, I wrote a little op-ed, and, and it got a great response. Uh, and I, I got a call. Uh, from uh, the person who would become my editor, uh, Alex Littlefield, and and he was like, I, I think there's a whole novel there. Um, and, and you know, I wrote it fast. You know, it was four months because it was just... All these things I had wanted to say in a nonfiction context that that never never really made sense. When you when you put them sort of one after the other in a narrative, um, suddenly I thought it was completely believable.
1: And this is a, a, a type, a genre of fiction that doesn't really exist anymore. I mean, if you think back... During the Cold War, with "On the Beach" or "A Last Babylon." I mean, "A Last Babylon." I'm from South Florida. That takes place in Florida. That was like a that was the book we all grew up in middle school reading. "A Last Babylon," and even going up into like the '80s with like the Third World War, these or "Red Storm Rising," these kind of which wasn't all that apocalyptic, but the kind of the World War III. You don't see a lot of those anymore. Even "Ghost Fleet," which is kind of the relatively recent high tech whiz bang novel, was a very limited war, not a nuclear one. Uh are you do you think this might reinvigorate the genre a little bit uh, you know we'll, I mean I hope so yeah.
2: right like I I actually I mean I loved when I was a kid uh all that Clancy stuff and uh, I, w- I was older when I got to uh the third world war right but but I I just think that what what we talk about when when we study nuclear weapons it's so important but it can be so dry mm-hmm. and and when it is dry the most important factor, which is the human factor, ends up getting taken out of it. And so, yeah, I, I, you know, I want other people to write more books like that, and you know what, maybe I want to write a couple more.
1: Well, I think that's the thing is that, you know, I enjoyed the book. You're not supposed to enjoy a book like this, but I'm a, that's my personality. But where it really does hit you is kind of the quote-unquote eyewitness accounts of some of the casualties and the damage and things. And that's what got everybody when they saw pictures out of Hiroshima That's what got everybody in the day after, right? It wasn't this nuclear exchange. It was a collapse of culture and civilization and the casualty stuff. And I think that, talk about the human element, right? Decision-making is wonderful. And I think this book, you know, you could look at this as kind of like Graham Allison essence of a decision of kind of like this step-by-step decision-making kind of the second half of this book to me is that human element, that idea of how do we react as human beings to this? And that's true as you write it in Japan and the United States and other places too. um, That sounds, it reads like it was purposeful. I'm assuming it was. Oh,
2: it it absolutely was. You know, I'm on the governor of Hiroshima's round table on disarmament. So I go to Hiroshima every year. And uh, it's a really enjoyable experience because it is centering. You know, it's a very serious thing that happened. and, And when you're talking about nuclear weapons there. You you think about the consequences of them. But it's also an incredible and vibrant city. It's one of my favorite places on earth. And so you have to kind of live with those two realities. And so one of the things I wanted to do when I when I was writing the novel is I, I wanted to try to share some of those stories from Hiroshima. Um, because I think, you know, we often push them away because they are dark and they are difficult. And we don't like to think about them. Um, But I wanted to recontextualize them and put them in a modern context um, and, you know, really focus on what would happen if a nuclear weapon went off because, you know, it's it's really terrible and it's a thing we don't like to think about. and, And at least for me, it's not a thing that I was really willing to think about until I went to Hiroshima.
1: There was a small passage in the book. It may have been just been a sentence, but it literally sent me off on two hours of thinking about something. And it was where you talk about the fact that there was disinformation, probably from the Russians, that there was widespread looting. And, and to me, I was like, oh my God, I can imagine how our adversaries could take advantage of a major crisis like that in the United States to amp up this deception disinformation campaign to the point where it's over. And if you think about societal breakdown, right, that's kind of the theme of like threads and the day after and, and on the beach and everything else. societal disillusion on steroids when you add social media and disinformation and how good other countries have gotten on that.
2: Yeah, you know, it was a thing I wanted to explore because if I have a criticism of the day after or threads, um, it's that, and I, I mean, I love both of those things. So, you know, it's a mild criticism, but people are pretty awful, you know, in those books. They really turn on each other pretty fast. And you know that didn't happen in hiroshima mm-hmm. right in hiroshima people helped one another out and i but my my question was like would that still be true right and so you know it it strikes me that you know there would absolutely be malicious actors who would completely use social media to try to advance all of these false narratives about who had been responsible and what really happened and i you know maybe cuz i spend too much time on twitter uh but like you know Boy, you spend a lot of time on social media, and it's hard not to come away having having some real dark concerns um, about, you know, how how would we react to something like this?
1: There's been a lot of, uh, recently, within the last 10, 15, 20 years, maybe even goes back beyond that, but certainly we've seen a lot of this when dealing with stuff like counterterrorism, is novelists, people who create movies, uh, being brought in by the DOD, by uh, intelligence agencies to kind of give it outside the box thinking almost kind of a red teaming from perspective. Max Brooks is a great example of this, who actually is like a sitting board member on one of these policy wonky board things that brings in fiction writers or to, to kind of talk about things that are so far outside of the realm of possibility. They're almost like the black swans of things. That's the setup to me asking, how has this book been received by people in the Pentagon, people in the IC people who are, doing nuclear policy inside the government for the United States.
2: I mean, look, you know, when I, when I meet people, maybe they just don't want to be rude, but I mean, it's been universally positive. I mean, I think there are a lot of, there are a lot of aspects of decision-making that get illustrated in the book and like decision-making literature can be pretty boring. Uh, And so one of the big pieces of feedback I've gotten that I found really gratifying is that uh, a lot of people find that it's a, a very engaging way uh, to address questions of like how do leaders think under pressure or how do information flows affect the decisions you know the questions that are really important but can can be a little dry and so uh, you know people have been really supportive uh, you know uh, there have been <laughs> there have been some some bulk orders um, and uh, you know i' I've, 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 I've given some talks um, and just uh, generally speaking I feel feel like there have been a lot of folks who definitely feel like the situation in Korea could get out of control, um but haven't really until now had a had a had a book where they were like, okay, so this is a way that can happen, right? right? And so that that part has been really gratifying.
1: You probably won't be invited to the White House to give a talk to uh
2: maybe incinerating Melania was not 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 the not the best
1: authorial choice. Um
2: yeah, you know you know it's that's
1: the least Bad thing you do to Donald Trump in that book <laughs> is incinerate his so, wife. You know,
2: so. I I gave it to a Trump voting friend of mine uh, in California, and you know, I really wanted his his opinion on it. Um, and he was like, "It's vicious but fair." <laughs> so, you know, I, you know, partly I will say. You know, I, in the book, I try to treat Trump like a, like a force of nature. He's a, he's a hurricane. You know, he's not a malevolent actor. He doesn't want this war right. at any point. Um, he does make some bad decisions. But, you know, pretty much everybody in this book makes bad decisions. Um, and, and I would say, you know, a lot of the things that I discuss are things that could go wrong in any administration. You know, right. they're the kind of mistakes anyone could make. It's just Donald Trump makes it more colorful.
1: And more publicly and louder. Yeah, yeah,
2: absolutely. I mean, you know, it, he is, in some ways, it, by his own choosing, he is such a caricature because of how loud he is. Um, it, it ends up being a really useful authorial device to illustrate things that that would really be true of any president.
1: The book is a 2020 Commission Report on the North Korean Nuclear Attacks Against the United States, a speculative novel. It's highly recommended. Uh, I. I usually read books because I have to. I read this one for fun, thank God. Uh, but if you have fun the same way I do, this will be a fantastic book for you. Even if not, uh, it's really a way to, um, to kind of try to wrap our heads around some of this decision-making that may or may not go this way. Let's hope it doesn't for everyone who lives literally in the ground zero of Northern Virginia in the book. I'm like, damn it. Well, at least I won't know I'm dead. Um And if you want to know a little bit about Chinese nuclear policy, uh, Jeff Lewis has two other books on that, too. As I mentioned in the intro, both are highly recommended as well. A little more wonky than this, uh, but they really take a deep dive into some of the more important nuclear issues um, in China policy. So thank you so much for joining us here on SpyCast. We truly appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTLSpyCast. That's I-N-T-L-SpyCast. Talk to you next week.